ghosts and aliens and ESP and cryptozoology and interdimensionals and ultimately us, you know, ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Somebody asked me during the off-season if I ever worry about losing the BOA Audio listeners when we take our lengthy hiatus between seasons and... I replied, you know, that I'm confident in our audience being able to find us again, especially when we kick off the season with the incomparable Jim Mars. And thankfully, my confidence was rewarded this past week when we had the highest traffic ever at Benal of America. Just astounding numbers of visitors to the website and listeners to the show. Just amazing stuff. So huge thanks to all our friends who passed along word of the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 5, and of course, enormous thanks to the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys are awesome. I'm so happy that you found us again. It's great to be back, and I'm really looking forward to the adventure that is going to be BOA Audio Season 5. Before I preview this week's episode, let me take care of two slight items of in-house notes. First, I want to congratulate Lauren Coleman as the 2009 BOA Audio Baseball Special Predictions Contest winner. He is the champion, edging out Greg Bishop by a very narrow margin. It was supremely tight, but Lauren Coleman is the champ. Congratulations, Lauren. And in a remarkable turn of events, I want to also congratulate USV poster Mystery Man for besting everybody across the board, not just the folks on the forum, but also all of the esoteric superstars This guy is amazing, got 7 out of 11 picks right. Since Lauren Coleman appeared on the special, he is by default the BOA Audio champion this year. But I didn't want to leave Mystery Man out in the cold here. He really topped everybody, which is just stunning to me. So he is getting an unprecedented prize this year as the overall winner of the prediction contest. He's going to join the Esoteric Superstars next year on the 2010 BOA Audio Baseball Special. So congratulations to Lauren Coleman, the BOA Audio Baseball Special Champion, and Mystery Man, the overall points winner, the US of E champion, elevating himself into the 2010 Baseball Special. Stay tuned this spring for the fourth annual Festivus devoted to America's national pastime. And while we're talking about Festivuses, It's frighteningly close to the holidays. We're already in the thick of the holiday season. And on this program, that only means one thing. The BOA Audio Holiday Special with Stanton Friedman. For those folks who tuned in last year, they know about the really cool additional twist we added to the special last year. And I'm happy to report that it will be back. All the details on that are going to be at the end of the program. No sense filling up the front end of the show with too much in-house notes. So tune in to the end of the program for details on what we have cooking for the fifth annual 
BOI Audio Holiday Special with Stanton Friedman. Now that we've taken care of the in-house notes, let's get down to business here, my friends. This week on the program, we are welcoming prolific esoteric researcher Joshua P. Warren for a BOA Audio-style jam session that's covering a plethora of paranormal topics. I listened to this episode yesterday and was completely blown away by how quickly it goes by. It is really a very fast-paced episode, amazingly engaging conversation, really enjoyed listening to it again. We cover a whole range of topics here this week. We're going to find out about Joshua's latest book, The Secret Wisdom of the Kukulkan. We're going to get into his research of phantomals and pet ghosts. We're going to find out about his investigation of hoaxes and why it's important to study them, his recent foray into ufology, his trips to Puerto Rico looking for mystery cryptids and studying island legends, his groundbreaking film Inside the Church of Satan, and the bizarre and terrifying demon serial rapist of Zanzibar, as well as tons and tons more. Plus, weaved into all those different subjects is a ton of fourth-wall smashing discussion with Joshua Warren about the field of esoterica, the various genres of esoterica, and the changing tides of this field of folks who are studying the paranormal, as well as some really cool and spooky stories. I know folks tune into the show and they want to hear some spooky stories from guests like Joshua P. Warren, who's got into a bunch of different spooky situations. He's going to share a few really cool spooky stories for you. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Joshua P. Warren, allow me to give you a little bit of background on him. Joshua P. Warren travels the world investigating paranormal phenomena. He is the author of 10 books, including Simon & Schuster's How to Hunt Ghosts. He's appeared on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, Travel Channel, TLC, Sci-Fi, and Fine Living, and hosts Speaking of Strange, a weekend radio show on the weird and mysterious. He's also an award-winning filmmaker, having produced and directed controversial films like Inside the Church of Satan. He's the founder and president of Lemur, L-E-M-U-R, a paranormal research group started in 1994, and he resides in Asheville, North Carolina. His lemur team made the cover of a science journal in 2004 for their work on the brown mountain lights and other rare ghostly plasmas in nature. His website is www.joshuapwarren.com. Pretty simple, all one word, joshuapwarren.com. I want to give a huge shout-out and thanks to previous VOA Audio guest Micah A. Hanks. He's a good, good friend of Joshua P. Warren. I was talking to him a few days before we taped the episode and said to Micah, is there anything I should ask Joshua that I might not even notice to pick up and ask, something that might fall through the cracks that only Micah A. Hanks would know? He sent me just a ton of talking points for this interview and really built the skeleton upon which this conversation sits. So i got to give huge thanks and props to Micah A. Hanks. Thank you, sir, for your help. We give you a shout-out during the episode, but I want to throw one in here at the beginning as well. So without any further ado... Let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 11th, 2009. Joshua P. Warren talking about a plethora of paranormal phenomena on BOA Audio, Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We've got a really cool guest here on the line for you this week. He is one of the world's foremost paranormal investigators. He really uh, 
can speak to a whole bunch of different realms in the world of esoterica. He's, I think, mostly well-known for his ghost research, but he's done a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, I could just go on and on and on with some of the stuff he's looked at. Uh, lately, it's been hoaxes, but he's also looked at the uh, Church of Satan. He's gone down to Puerto Rico to study some of the mysteries down there. He's also sort of starting to branch into the UFO realm, and he's talked a little bit about mystery cryptids as well, scary cryptids and stuff like that. Frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM. He's appeared on numerous TV shows and TV channels, History Channel, Discovery Channel, TLC, Sci-Fi, and hosts his own weekend radio show, uh, Speaking of Strange. So he's an author, he's a broadcaster, he's a researcher. He really is a renaissance man, not just in his output, but also in the topics that he covers he is the amazing Joshua P. Warren. Great to have you on the show. Finally, Joshua, welcome to BOA Audio. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. It, it is a, a great thrill to finally be here with you. And, uh, hey, what a wonderful introduction. I need to uh, have that repeated every time I go somewhere new. That was cool. <laughs> well, I'll see what I can do. We'll get you, some, <laughs> we'll get you set up with, a, with some kind of <laughs> soundbite or transcript of that. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, and he, he's written ten books, at least, here uh, from what I'm looking at. And he's got just a boatload of websites, so many that if I listed them all, we, we'd be here all afternoon. So I guess the, the hub to look for right now will be joshuapwarren.com, and from there I'm sure he can, you can sort of jump off to all the different other ones that are out there. Yeah, that's right, uh, joshuapwarren.com, and there is no period after the P, but uh, I try to sort of compile everything there and at least have references and links to all the little projects. And then, of course, there is also uh, material that is relevant to whatever I happen to be working on at any given time that I kind of change on a maybe a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And also, I should point out, you're the founder and president of Lemur, which is one of the powerhouse uh, paranormal investigative teams out there. So kudos to you. It sounds like, uh, well, you've been doing the lemur thing since like the mid-90s, so you're kind of ahead of the curve, because nowadays it's like you can't get down to the store to get a gallon of milk without bumping into two or three ghost groups, so... You know, it's good to see that you <laughs> that you uh, sort of were ahead of the curve on all that. Well, yeah, thank you. You know, it's really amazing. I founded Lemur in 1995, and um, I founded it out of necessity because I just couldn't gather uh, enough data by myself to form some comprehensive opinions on some of the activity I was investigating. And, and back when I founded Lemur, there was controversy about it. I mean, I, for one thing, I live here in Asheville, North Carolina, and this is literally Billy Graham land, and there are a lot of really conservative fundamentalist Christians around here who for a long time have believed that it was you know, evil to even go to a haunted place to talk about this. And for me to see what has happened just you know, in the past 15 years in terms of the exposure the field has gotten on TV and the amount of people who have embraced it, it it's just uh, incredible. It's remarkable. And so, yeah, now I, I feel like that I guess we we achieved the goal. We have people out there gathering data, but uh, now it's become a little more complicated to differentiate between the serious and the non-serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nowadays you got too many people out there collecting data. You don't know who to turn to. And, and as I was saying, you know, you, you've got so much stuff going on, and, and you're one of those guys in esoterica, and I mean this like at the, at the highest compliment, that we almost sometimes don't find out how you really got into all of this stuff because you're always talking about the latest thing that you have going on. You sort of remind me a little bit of like the Peter Davenport's and, and the Linda Moulton Howes and stuff like that who are 
always have some new information, always have some new investigation or some new project that they're talking about. And for the folks like me who've been in this field for a brief amount of time, you know, five or six years, it's like you're a staple of the field, but we have no idea like how you got into all this. So let's talk a little bit about that, you know, for starters. How did you even get interested in the esoteric uh, to the point where now you're so prolific and doing all this different stuff? Well, you know, my family has lived here in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina, which are the oldest mountains in North America, since the 1600s. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm some of the earliest Europeans who came over here. And I grew up hearing a lot of stories about, you know, these various legends and, and spooky phenomena in the mountains. But there was one thing in particular that sort of affected my family profoundly. Uh, back during the Great Depression, my uh, grandmother, who is now dead, she was, uh, I think, 12 or 13 years old. And she took uh, a photograph of her brother and their father, uh, these two sort of rugged mountain men who had just come back from a small game hunting trip. And uh, when the photograph developed, her older brother named Claude did not have a head in the photo. And uh, they couldn't explain why this had developed and he was headless, but you know they didn't understand enough about photography to really make any sense of it. And then about one month later, Claude was sitting on the porch on a summer afternoon reading a copy of a magazine, and he was having this conversation with their father uh, named Jack in the kitchen, and he was preparing lunch. And at one point, Jack spoke to Claude, and there was no answer. And uh, he repeated himself, and there was no answer. And he went outside to bring the lunch, and here's Claude's magazine there on the porch, but Claude was was gone. And uh, and as the old proverb goes, Claude was never seen nor heard from again. Whoa. Uh, this guy, my great uncle, had just vanished in literally mid-conversation in the blink of an eye. And this went beyond some kind of mythology. This was a tragedy that affected my family. You know, people were... Uh, the rest of their lives, they were torn up over the fact that this, you know, he was in his 20s, and, you know, a guy that they loved and knew in his 20s just, just disappeared. It, and so um, I knew this was real, and this sort of opened my mind at an early age to all the possibilities of how that there may be other dimensions or there may be some process by which we can actually disappear from this realm into some other place. And uh, when I was, I guess, 13 or 14, I started writing my first published book that was published when I was 14, and it was a book of uh, scary fictional short stories and poems, and uh, the book did well enough that I got a job writing for the local newspaper. So here I was, 15 years old, I couldn't even drive myself, and my parents were taking me around to interview people. And um, I got such a great response to the ghost stories because we have a very rich history in this area, but nobody had ever written a book of the ghost stories. And so by the time I was 18, I wrote this book called Haunted Asheville, which to this day is the regional bestseller, uh, I'm told. And, uh, and that really sort of catapulted the direction of my life because every time I published something, 
I got a whole slew of people contacting me, telling me about other places to investigate, and, and I realized that, you know, if if there is value and rarity, these are some of the rarest experiences you can have, and uh, uh, I've been self-employed now since I was 18 years old, just solely uh, finding ways to, uh, to take what I love, uh, investigating the unknown, and turn it into a career. Wow, yeah, I'm still blown away by this story of your of your great uncle, because... You don't hear too many vanishing stories, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, a lot of these stories that you do hear seem kind of anecdotal. But, um, you know, I went back as an adult, and I talked in person, face-to-face, with all of these elderly people who lived in the community, who knew Claude, who were around when this happened, who participated in search parties, and uh, they all told me the same story, and, and that doesn't happen very often, but they all said, no, this this is what happened. You know, the, the guy was sitting there, he was having a conversation, and all of a sudden, he was gone, and uh, and it also caused scandal. People, There were people who said, well, surely he must have been murdered, of course, you know, because you can't just disappear appear. And uh, so this was a, a pretty profound thing that opened my mind. And I, at an early age, accepted the, the, the paranormal, so to speak, is, uh, is something that has real tangible consequences in life. Yeah, I'm just still kind of mind boggled by that. Because even when you hear vanishing stories, it's usually someone, they're traveling somewhere and they vanish. It's like, to, but to be stationary and vanish, very weird. Now, let's talk a little bit about the new book you have. It's The Secret Wisdom of the Kukulkan. So I guess tell people a little bit about what that's all about. Give us a thumbnail look at it, and uh, we'll sort of explore some of the territory covered in the book. Yeah, well, you know, this book is unlike any book I've ever written. And, uh, in fact, I'll say right off the bat, it's the strangest book I've ever written because what I decided to do was to sit down and take stock of what I had learned over the past 20 or so years and look at what I think is the connection between ghosts and aliens and ESP and cryptozoology and interdimensionals and ultimately us, you know, ourselves, because you find the more you study these phenomena that you might begin with one particular category, but if you stick with it long enough, you start seeing these connections between all of them, and it's kind of like as Charles Fort said, you can measure a circle beginning anywhere, and uh, so I decided to condense everything that I had learned into um, this concise volume. It's only a little over 100 pages long because we live in a very fast-paced, distracted culture, and um, I wanted to get right to the point. And as I was writing it, there were actually things that I was realizing for the first time, especially by the time I kind of got to the end of the book, and uh, the, the real engine behind the story came from a trip I took to the uh, Mayan ruins in Central America at Lamanai, which are the most secluded of the Mayan ruins. And for a long time, I didn't know what to think about this whole 2012 thing. You know, I was very sort of fuzzy and uh, and I didn't want to commit to any ideas about it. But once you start really digging into it, you understand there's there's a great deal of significance to the Mayan understanding of 2012. And so here I was down in the middle of this jungle with monkeys swinging from the trees and crocodiles in the river, and uh, it took it was a big ordeal to get there, and I'm standing on top of this Mayan pyramid, and I thought this was going to be a cool experience just to go down there and, and see something that has been hidden for so long. What I did not expect was that I would discover something that 
actually pushed forth the understanding of what may have happened all those thousands of years ago. And what I mean by that is that right in the middle of the ruins at Lamanai, the guide I was with uh, showed us that there was a chamber that some archaeologists discovered and this was in the middle of their most sacred spot there. And uh, when they, they overturned this circular stone, and the chamber underneath had liquid mercury inside. Wow. And this had been put there thousands of years ago. And archaeologists have no idea how or, or where they got this. Um, and the, the process of refining it back then is, is a strange thing. And it was just one of those quirky little things that they couldn't make sense of. But I learned this, and this meant something to me. See, I started doing research, and I found that also liquid mercury had been found in chambers in the Egyptian pyramids and tombs and the Chinese pyramids and tombs and all around the world, but nobody had ever tried to make sense of this. Also, in the Indian text, uh, the, the, the Vedic text, the Vishnu, they talked about the fact that there were visitors who, who had come from beyond in liquid mercury-powered engines. <laughs> and, and furthermore, in the 1930s, the Nazis, who uh, went to Central and South America on expeditions that led to them setting up compounds down there, they studied these ruins, and then they created uh, this experiment uh, regarding Diglaka, the bell, which of course was this big metallic apparatus that had two counter-rotating cylinders of liquid mercury inside, and when it was fired up by all real reports from people like uh, Jim Mars and Joseph P. Farrell, things that have been substantiated, this device would lose weight. It, it had an anti-gravity property. It would actually rise up. It also put off a deadly radiation, and uh, it, it apparently could affect space-time because clocks and watches that were close to it would run slightly slower. And uh, so I, I sort of assembled all this into a concept that maybe the reason we have this liquid mercury appearing in all these sites from thousands of years ago where people were worshiping visitors from beyond is because this is a real component of the technology that was being used by those visitors and that therefore we can use that as a as a, a yardstick by which to measure what those ancient people were trying to tell us that those visitors told them about what was going to happen when they returned. And so a part of this whole Kukulkan book is about trying to explain what I think is going to happen around, uh, well, December 21st of 2012. Oh, I don't know if I want to spoil anything. So give us a teaser, I guess, of what you think will happen on 2012. Well, you know, I think that the universe goes through these seasons very much like the Earth does. There is an ebb and flow of frequencies that change very measurably. And the reason that one thing is physical to another thing is because they both resonate within a certain frequency range. And if they are too out of phase, they become non-physical to each other, which is why that we can't feel a radio wave or a microwave, but they exist. Uh, they are of something we've learned to harness, but we don't experience them personally in any immediate way. So as the universe goes through cycles, 
where frequencies sort of change, there are times when things become more or less physical to each other. And by all accounts, I think that on December 21st of 2012, we are going to be at a point in a cosmic cycle at which it's going to be easier for these beings, I call them paratemporals actually, which is a, a general term, uh, these beings are going to actually be able to access our physical dimension more easily than they have been able to for a long time. And that there, it's not like necessarily a, 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 a switch is going to be flipped on December 21st, but that will be the beginning of a gradual increase that will increase probably for another thousand years, actually, of these interactions with these beings. And uh, so I think that the reason we are at a point right now at which we have so many people, so many groups and investigators interested in the paranormal is because there is something in the collective consciousness here that's preparing us for the fact that these things we call paranormal are about to become normal and we are about to be inundated uh, starting with uh, 2012 and, and going into the years beyond with uh, a mass visitation of these beings as was reported in the literature of virtually every major culture around the world uh, two to five thousand years ago. Whoa. So you're talking about all kinds of different things like aliens, Bigfoot, ghosts, all those various things that are sort of out of reach from us right now? Yes, I definitely think that uh, there is a relationship between all of them in the fact that ultimately it's all really about reaching an interdimensional gap yeah. and uh, and of course it, it happens most of the time on a very limited basis but uh, I firmly believe that uh, for example a, a cryptid like uh, Bigfoot is not a physical biological normal organism now the Bigfoot might be physical I mean I've talked to a lot of people who I think are sincere who say they've seen you know a physical Bigfoot but uh, I do not believe that there is an 800 to 1200 pound, you know, eight foot tall ape, uh, living in the United States of America as reported in all 50 states every single year. And, uh, it, and we, we don't have more evidence. I mean, come on, we, we, we should have a lot more evidence, more hair, more, uh, more waste. I mean, more of an impact on the ecology. And, and yet we do have these stories about uh, somebody tracking a Bigfoot and finding that its footsteps or its footprints just disappear in mid-pathway. And, and what you find is that when you start looking at ghosts and aliens and cryptids, the one common thread they all have, as well as psychic phenomena, is that there is always this distortion of time. And what I mean by that is that when you look at ghosts, often you are looking at something from the past. So obviously you've got your time time sort of slip there. And then when it comes to aliens, well, all the time we get reports about a flying saucer that will appear over a car, and the car will stop working. Mm -hmm. And then the, the saucer will fly away, and the car starts working again. Uh, the person in the driver's seat doesn't have to turn the ignition again. It's not like the motor w was stopped. It, it was almost like time had been frozen there for a second. And then when you have these reports about a cryptid like Bigfoot, 
walking down a pathway and then all of a sudden he's gone, well, his space has changed, so obviously his time has changed since space and time work in tandem. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in pretty much agreement with you in the sense that there is some kind of, like, unified field theory of the paranormal that, that we need to sort of uh, start to unlock, or once we get one figured out, the rest will sort of start to fall into place pretty quickly thereafter. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we know that everything must connect at some level, and the problem with the paranormal so far has been um, it has been so divided and and broken amongst these sort of small, weird factions of outcasts that there has been very little done to centralize all the data that's been collected. And usually you find groups out there who make it clear that they specialize in one area or another. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you don't see many people who are putting all the pieces together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, at least it seems like in the last few years that's starting to change a little bit now where people are starting to become more open to looking at all the pieces together and trying to come up with some kind of, like I said, unified field theory because all the different groups of genres of esoterica have been trying to reach an answer for their specific mystery for years to no avail. So. I think that people are starting to realize that, you know, maybe as a, let's say, for instance, as a ghost researcher, you know, maybe I should look at UFOs a little bit because maybe there's something there that I haven't seen yet that might explain more about ghosts to me. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, different people interpret different things in different ways, or sometimes they interpret the same thing in different ways. And, you know, it's a, uh, recently I was telling a friend, you know, if a little green man runs into a room, one person will say, oh, there's an alien. Somebody else will say, oh, there's a leprechaun. Somebody else will say, oh, there's a demon. Um, and so you really sort of um, restrict your research potential if you limit yourself to the, the definition that somebody gives for uh, a being that is not universally agreed upon. Exactly. Now let's talk a little bit about the the pet ghosts because this is kind of interesting to me because I'm a pet owner but uh, only a hamster so nothing really nothing serious as far as uh, <laughs> pets go and I know uh, jo- uh, I should put over our good friend here our good mutual friend Micah A Hanks who really unloaded a ton of talking points for me uh, uh, regarding this interview in in preparation for the interview he just sent me tons of stuff to ask you about so <laughs> so a lot of the Heads up research has been done by Micah, thankfully. I mean, he really just helped me out huge. So big thanks to Micah. He told me to call you a scallywag also. I don't don't know if that resonates. I guess it does. (laughs) I've heard that before, yes. Okay. I guess talk a little bit about what this is, your research into pet ghosts. And and Micah said you prefer the term phantomals. So I do like that. Is this actual ghosts of animals or is it just sort of ghosts um, you know, that resemble animals, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, that, that's a great question, and uh, and I'm glad that, that Micah brought that up because, you know, Micah has a great background in cryptozoology, and so he also has sort of had to struggle with how we define these things. One of the big reasons that a lot of these mysteries we study are still mysteries is because we haven't used uh, a, a proper uh, language in order to all communicate effectively about the same things. And when I started writing a book, which ended up being called Pet Ghost, that was the name the publisher gave it. I would have probably called it Phantomals, but uh, they wanted to call it Pet Ghost because they thought it was more marketable. I was writing a book about 
paranormal entities that appear more animal-like than human-like. Okay. And what I found was that as I wrote this book, it became really laborious to try to to explain the types of creatures I was writing about with one word, because there was no singular word that represents that definition I just gave you. You have people talking about cryptids, but a lot of people, you know, refer to, I mean, there are animals that are cryptids that are normal physical biological organisms. I mean, the, the giant panda or the coelacanth or, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, and there was just no word that existed anywhere in the lexicon. And I mean, I looked very intensely that would allow me to conveniently describe all these creatures, everything from Mothman to an interdimensional being. Uh, to an animal ghost, and so I created this word phantomal that would allow me to uh, to communicate that, and uh, apparently a lot of other people have also found it to be uh, useful. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. It sort of does clear that up, because like I said, it, when you hear pet ghosts at first, you think that it's like the ghost of someone's cat or something that, that came back to visit them. Is that That's not really what the what the book really is, though, is it? Well, all that stuff is in there. You oh, okay. Know? I mean, it, it's got cats and dogs, and uh, it, it also has got um, the weird stuff like Mothman. Uh, and I even talk about things that press the boundary of how we think of an animal reaction to death. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, according to every study that I was able to find that has been done along these lines, when a person dies, or an animal dies for that matter, there are flies that appear on that dead body mm -hmm. within five or ten minutes that have come from miles and miles, sometimes 20, 30 miles away. Oh, wow. And scientists cannot explain how that these flies so quickly knew that the body had died because there, there's no evidence that any of the particles had drifted through the air, uh, anything associated with decomposition. Yeah. And so we don't know how that these creatures so quickly know when something has died. Well, I looked at that and I said, well, maybe there there is some kind of an energy field uh, of death itself. There There is some type of a process that's taking place here when when a soul or, or when a spirit is transitioning and there are creatures that after millions of years have evolved to be sensitive to that and that's also why you have these situations when uh, you hear stories once in a while on the news about a, a nursing home and they have a little kitty who always goes and curls up in the lap of the person who's about to die in about two hours and they say how does this little kitty know that this person is on their deathbed and um, it's probably because that we don't usually think of them this way but dogs and cats are predators I mean they've survived all these years by knowing when something is sick and about to die and when it's weak and that's what, what they do to eat yeah um, and so I also talk about harbingers and the idea that there are creatures that will appear around uh, a paranormal or in some cases a, a morbid sort of a scenario because that they have uh, evolved this natural ability to be sensitive to these things that that we aren't sensitive to so much anymore. Yeah, that would make sense. That's interesting. I'd like to see more studies done on that kind of thing, but it would be kind of a hard thing to really study, I guess. You'd have to have some kind of like dying animal under, who knows, some kind of special 
supervision of, uh, you know, electromagnetic light fields and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're right. There is so much that needs to be done to experiment with animals. In fact, I, I've even put some proposals together, and so far we haven't made much progress with them. But if you look at the entire animal kingdom uh, from, you know, microorganisms all the way up, what you find is that almost everything that we associate with psychic ability uh, is in some way demonstrated by an animal. I mean, you know, sharks have a sixth sense for magnetism, and, you know, electric eels have these cells that are able to produce these incredible voltages that can kill things. Penguins can see ultraviolet light. And, uh, and if you continue down that course and you look at, you know, there are lizards who regenerate their limbs and all this, betwixt us all as organisms, we can do all these things that we usually consider paranormal or supernatural if if a human can supposedly do it. And yet, when you look at us under a microscope, we're all made of the same material. Uh, we are all, you know, carbon-based organic life forms here. And it, it therefore seems to me that uh, we should try to take representatives across the animal kingdom and test them out to see which ones seem to be most psychic, however you want to define that, and then examine the DNA of uh, of those creatures and see what we can learn about those abilities that um, we separate so much from what is possible for us as humans. Exactly. It makes you wonder sometimes if that's the kind of thing that's been done in underground nefarious sort of situations, not to get too conspiratorial or anything like that, but you look at that new movie there, the men who stare at goats, and you wonder, you know, if this research has been done somewhere and we just haven't been told about it yet. Well, that's a good point, and I think that uh, you're probably right about that because there are so many sensitivities surrounding animals in general and uh, the, the idea of being, you know, politically correct and how you, you deal with that. Uh, and here we are, it's it's November as we have this conversation, and Thanksgiving is along the way, and I know that there are people who talk about turkey murder every year. And <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there are all these considerations that you'd have to deal with in public, but the military, the military is it's so valuable yet so inaccessible because, you know, militaries, they don't care about whether or not they can explain how something works. All they care about is whether or not it works. And over the, the years, you know, I've had contact with people in the military who have worked on these projects that are so controversial. In fact, speaking of the men who stare at goats, a, a prominent player in that is Colonel John Alexander. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was uh, a guest at his home for uh, an evening uh, just earlier this year, as a matter of fact. I was out in Nevada speaking at the International UFO Congress, and I got to go over and spend an evening with him and uh, and his wife. And you know, they were great uh, hosts and hostesses, and uh, a host and hostess. But uh, at one point, I went into his office, and his home is really uh, extraordinary. I mean, he, on the walls, he just has uh, dozens and dozens of pictures of him doing the kinds of things that uh, you and I can only dream about. You know, you're walking around, and he's like, oh, here I am in Antarctica. You know, here I am uh, <laughs> with a gorilla in the uh, jungles. You know, here I am riding a camel in front of the, the Great Pyramid. You know, here I am on top of Mount Everest. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so 
finally, we um, we went up to his office, and on all the walls there were stills from his TV appearances. Uh, here he is with Larry King, and here he is with Geraldo, and it's, uh, and right in the middle of all this is a shadow box that contained a spoon that was sort of twisted and, and melted, and there was a brass plate on it that said, you know, Uri Geller, and it had a date on it. And uh, I asked him about it, and he told me that uh, he had been standing right there in front of Uri Geller. Apparently, I don't know if this was a base or whatever they were on, but he said he handed Uri Geller a spoon. Geller took it straight from his hand, and he watched this thing just bend right over and twist around and melt, and he handed it back to him. And this was in the context of some kind of military training education. And I know that Uri Geller has done underhanded things. I mean, I've seen pretty good evidence of him on TV shows using magnets and stuff to create effects. But yeah. uh, but Colonel John Alexander uh, is convinced, as far as I'm concerned, that not only did Geller do this, but he had seen a lot of people that were involved in military training who had done paranormal things that were very valuable for the U.S. military. And so um, I, I know personally just how seriously those guys in the military take the paranormal. Absolutely. And then now just to uh, smash the fourth wall a little bit, and, and uh, I know some audience members of my show sometimes complain that we do smash the fourth wall too much, but hey, that's what I'm interested in, so we're going to go there. <laughs> um, and we, we kind of talked about how you formed Lemur in 1995 and how you guys really were you know way ahead of the curve as far as these ghost hunting groups go and stuff i guess what's your take on this explosion of ghost hunting in the last five or six years where you know i think before you guys probably could have gone and investigated just about anything but nowadays it's like these these investigations are turning into turf wars and we're just sort of like you know getting a whole bunch of different people weekend warriors, if you will, and amateur ghost hunters who probably aren't really doing the field of service because they just see it on TV and think that they can be ghost hunters now and sort of oversaturates the field, that, if you will, and not to mention all these different ghost hunting shows because there's like so many of them now. Yeah, well, you know, I really think that the TV impact is the crux of all this. And, you know, over the years I've been on, on Discovery and Travel Channel and History Channel and National Geographic. And, in fact, I was on Animal Planet just last night and, and TLC. And at one point I had a four-year exclusive talent contract with Discovery. And, uh, and I, I really know the TV business pretty well. And yet I don't watch any of these TV shows um, that, you know, I mean, I, I will watch documentaries on the History Channel. I think the History Channel does a, a great job. Yeah. But I, I don't watch these shows like Ghost Hunters and, uh, and Ghost Adventures and, and there's a whole list of these, yeah. you know, uh, Paranormal State. And, and, and because I've just watched bits and pieces and I immediately get, get this feeling that I'm looking at something that is, um, is so staged that I have seen this happen. I mean, I've been on a set before. I was doing a documentary, a supposed documentary one time for one of these major channels, and I was supposed to comment on the Brown Mountain Lights. And the uh, director came up to me and says, uh, okay, Joshua, here's your script, and uh, Brian, here's your script. And I said, script? You know, and I opened this thing up, and sure enough, this was a teleplay. It says, Joshua says this, and, you know, Brian says 
And I said, I'm not going to read this. I'm not here to be an actor. Yeah. You know, I'm here to, to do an honest interview. And so I have very little respect for the TV business. But what I found was that um, it was only a matter of time. And it, it kind of started happening, you know, really, I guess, you know, well, it's not been that long ago. I mean, I guess it was around the early 2000s when people in the TV business began to realize that to tape a ghost hunt is pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, because all you really do is you just get a, a group of people who have, you know, various personality types, and you put them in a supposedly uh, stressful or tense situation, and you give them some meters that make little whiny noises and, and have <laughs> blinky lights on them and so forth, and that uh, it costs almost nothing to go out and edit this together and get people to watch it. And I think that is the very practical reason that we have an explosion of uh, all of this TV. And you, unfortunately, at that point, start attracting people to the field who are interested in being celebrities, uh, who are interested in the whole showbiz point of view versus the reality of trying to understand uh, on a scientific or otherwise basis more about what's happening. And so there is this just uh, glossy uh, commercial aspect that has just been ushered in. And another thing that's, uh, that's so sad about this is I remember years ago I was talking to uh, a colleague. I want to use his name without permission, but he's a well-known person in the ghost research field. And this was right around the time I wrote a book called How to Hunt Ghosts. Yeah. Has, has done really well. And uh, he sat down with me and he said, you know, I used to do all these ghost TV shows. And, uh, and this guy's a doctor, mind you. Mm -hmm. And he said, I got to the point where I see all these TV shows and they're out there, they're selling commercials and, you know, they're making money, but they don't want to pay me anything. So I told him, you know, I'm only going to uh, appear on your program if you pay me for the time, because otherwise I could be out here making money as I ordinarily do. Yeah. But instead of paying him to get a real expert, they prefer to go with Joe Bob down the street here who has a web page saying, well, I'm a paranormal investigator and I'll do it for free. Exactly. And so what we have here is a cumulative effect of people who really don't know a lot about the subject matter, and yet they become the representatives for the field in the media. And uh, this uh, chain reaction has continued, and now we have a lot of people who who really aren't qualified. They don't know how that little squeaky box with the blinking lights in their hand actually works. <laughs> you know, you ask them, what is an electromagnetic field? You know, what is an electrostatic charge? They don't have an answer for you, but they, uh, they're looking for some kind of excitement and glamour. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we have to identify it for what it is. Yeah, and the unfortunate part is the people like you and me know what's going on, but it's the people who are sort of neophytes to the field that watch, they don't realize that aspect of what we're talking about. Well, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to be tested. You know, I tell people, if, ask me, you know, ask me what, 
what I'm talking about. And don't take for granted that, you know, I could be BSing you here. Uh, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, my team and I made the cover of a science journal in 2004. And I don't know of any other uh, quote-unquote, you know, paranormal research team that has ever made the cover of a science journal. And uh, we did that for some of our groundbreaking work on how that um, anomalous uh, spherical plasmas like ball lightning are formed in nature. And uh, this came from looking into the brown mountain lights, which for so long have always been considered just an old ghost story. And, um, you know, I, I definitely don't know everything but I will tell you that uh, I don't go out there in the public talking about things that I don't really know about. You know, I'm, I know what I'm talking about, and I see a lot of people around me who, who might, I think do not. Exactly. Now, that kind of is a, a pretty good bridge, I guess, into the next thing I want to talk to you about, and that's this hoax research center. It sounds like you've been doing a lot of research into hoaxes, which is sort of an interesting angle to look at in esoterica because it seems like often uh, once a hoax is rooted out, People just want to throw it in the trash bin and get away from it and not actually deal with, you know, what the hoaxers did and how we can identify future hoaxes based on what we've seen, which sounds like what you guys are doing with the Hoax Research Center. That's exactly right, and uh, that's a very good way of phrasing it, actually, because I, I remember when I, was, uh, when I was growing up and I was reading books about UFOs, how once in a while I'd come across a story about you know, some guys taking some birthday candles and putting them in a big balloon and sending them up in the air, and the next thing you know, somebody's called the cops. And and, and when uh, time progressed to the point to which, you know, we started getting a lot of uh, UFO photos sent to us and UFO videos, and people were saying, you know, how how could this possibly be a conventional craft? I mean, an airplane can't do this. Well, I wondered, well, is, you know, is this an airplane? I mean, it, what if this is some tiny little thing? You know, well, how do we know that we can offer some uh, authoritative opinion here on fact versus fiction if we have not got any kind of real database here? Because, you know, you might see a picture or a video clip once in a while saying, well, you know, this is a, a UFO that is remote controlled or, you know, this is something that I hooked to a hot air balloon or a helium balloon and put up, but you don't know the dimensions of the thing. You don't know uh, the weight of it. You don't know the conditions under which it was shot. And so I figured that really the only way that we could ever give any kind of accurate opinion on whether or not a, a UFO photo or a ghost photo or a cryptid photo or anything like that might be real is to understand how we can rule out what's not real. And, and that's a pretty basic premise in the rest of science, but it's, it's actually kind of um, um, rare and, uh, and uh, it, it's sort of controversial in terms of paranormal phenomena because there's this impression that if you get out there studying hoaxes that you're just trying to learn how to be a hoaxer. Yeah. And, uh, but that's not it at all. I mean, so we, we, I created an event that uh, has run for years now, the uh, Speaking of Strange UFO Experience, in which we invite creative engineers and artists to come from all over the country and build fake UFOs that have to be able to fly, and they must be safe, and they put them up in the air. And we're not trying to fool anybody, you know, to pretend like these are real, but, you know, we put them up in the air, and we take pictures, and we videotape them. And we now have, to my knowledge, the only database – 
in the world, at least on the civilian level here, of faked UFOs. And I know the budget and I know the challenges and, you know, I have all this information that we've gathered. And over time, this has expanded outside of, of UFOs. And uh, at this point, I'm pretty good at looking at the UFO pictures or, or video footage and, and immediately getting an intuitive sort of reaction and determining whether or not this looks like it's real or not, because I've now seen, you know, hundreds of fake ones. Uh, and I know exactly how they were built and how they probably flew the thing. But uh, over time, I've had to pay more and more attention to other areas, just like, you know, when that Bigfoot body deal was hoaxed down in Georgia. Yeah. Which was just more or less right down the road, you know, a couple hours down the road from where I live. And so, uh, yeah, it's important to, to know what's fake so you can rule out fakes. It just makes logical sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's like people in the paranormal field, uh, they don't want to deal with hoaxes once it's been proven to be a hoax. They just, like, completely block their ears out, and they're like, la, 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 whatever, don't tell me any more about this. And it's like, no, we need to look at this more a little bit because that way we can kind of prevent this from happening again. Yeah, well, you know, history repeats itself. And, um, you know, you, if you look back, people have been up to the same old tricks for a long, long time, and everybody's always trying to make a, a cheap, fast buck somewhere. And uh, I don't think that that issue of how things are hoaxed is being properly addressed. And so one thing we're doing right now with the Hoax Research Center is coming up with a list of red flags that something could be a hoax. And, and this comes from not only observing hoaxes and knowing how they're produced, but also from in-depth interviews with hoaxers. I mean, uh, I, I, I talked for a long time to the guys who did the Bigfoot hoax for months and had a lot of, you know, personal, private conversations with them about, you know, what was going on in their heads and why they did this. And uh, it, it's funny because in some cases it's understandable. You know, somebody just wants to make some money. But in other cases, uh, somebody just wants uh, attention or it's just sort of like a big prank or a big, big gag. And, uh, in fact, at one of our UFO experiences, a guy named Jeff Wilson, who was our champion for maybe three years in a row, he created this big, incredible-looking triangular UFO that he put up into the sky at night with helium balloons and, and had uh, lasers on it that were shooting down uh, through fog. And, you know, it just was a really impressive-looking thing. And somebody took that video footage and put it on the Internet along with a big report about how this was actually real footage from Dublin. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had quotes from real politicians. There was supposed to be a politician who saw it and a, and a police officer who saw it. These were real people, and, and they had their quotes, and it was just a very believable report. Uh, and yet I've got this, this you know, Dublin-Irish triangle sitting in my guest bedroom right now. <laughs> and so uh, it, to me, it, that was a great example of how that, yeah, we have to face the fact that people do hoax things. And um, there is too much of a tendency right now in the field for, uh, I believe, investigators to look at something and either say, well, uh, this is either real or it's just something that's misleading us in terms of our ability to examine it. Uh, and they don't think about the conscious human intent to, to create absolute fabrications. Exactly. Do you think that there's 
a rise in hoaxes nowadays? Because I don't seem to feel it, but since you're sort of looking at hoaxes on a more serious level and actually acknowledging them, I, I think I'm probably of the of the same sort of mindset, probably to a fault that I was sort of criticizing other people in the paranormal field for, where if it's like a hoax, I'm just usually like, all right, that's a hoax, next, what's next coming up, you know, what's the next big news item? But do you think there's a an uptick in hoaxes uh, in the last few years with the, you know, explosion of the internet, or is it something that's just, you know, maybe we're just seeing them more than we used to? You know, I, I think that it might be a, a bit of both, because for one thing, um, I, we don't see very many hoaxes that we kind of consider malicious, and, and, it, and that's kind of a funny word to use anyway, because I don't know that any hoax is really malicious in terms of the paranormal. Yeah. You know, it's usually kind of a, a jokester type of, of situation, and yet, uh, like with the Bigfoot guys, I think that a lot of people use this word malicious because... Um, you know, there was the impression that somebody's being duped out of $50,000 here. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a very nice thing to do. So most of the time, I think that uh, it's very, very easy for us to go to a toy store now uh, and buy something that looks impressive when you throw it up in front of a camera, uh, whether it's uh, an LED array or it literally is a little, you know, remote control flying saucer, which, you know, you can buy for 20 bucks or something you can hook to a birthday balloon. I think that we are seeing more and more people who are playing the role of little Steven Spielbergs out there, uh, shooting something that looks interesting and they're just throwing it on the Internet and not really talking about what it is or, uh, or maybe they just uh, use some wording which would lead you to believe that it could be something more than it is. Uh, so, so that is happening a lot more often. But uh, but I don't think that we have a, a real rise in terms of people who are out there trying to orchestrate a, uh, a hoax that's going to uh, to meet criminal requirements. <laughs> in the paranormal world, that's the threshold you have to worry about. So yeah, yeah right. <laughs> now you said you spoke at the UFO Congress in Laughlin. Now what's a nice ghost hunter like you want to get mixed up in this retarded world of <laughs> UFOs for? Yeah, you know that was um, that was actually um, a big surprise for me because even though you know I've always said we specialize in ghost research, but uh, I understand the connections between it all, and we're, we're more than happy to look into all these different facets. Um, it was a bit of a surprise to get a call and uh, be asked to to speak at the largest UFO congress in the entire world, and and they wanted to talk to me about the hoaxes and. Uh, I knew that I might not get an opportunity to go back to that uh, conference because, yeah. you know, it is a big one. So I talked about hoaxes, and I gave examples of, you know, guidelines you can use to help you rule out a hoax. But I also took the opportunity to do something I don't think they quite expected. Um, I said, now let's look at things that obviously are not hoaxes. And I took them down that path as well and tried to guide many of the researchers away from this nuts and bolts approach to UFOs that has really gone nowhere over the past 60 or so years. Yeah. And that's why we keep, you know, we're spinning our wheels when you, because you, you have people out there and I mean, I, there is one very, very famous UFO researcher and I, I won't mention his name here, but I had a personal conversation with him and I asked him, 
what he thought about the idea that uh, some of these UFOs could be tulpas. And he said, well, what's a tulpa? Now, oh, man. you know, to, to the average person, that may not be a big deal. But if you're an expert and you've been doing this for, you know, so many decades, you should know what a, the concept of a tulpa is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And he said, look, I'm telling you, these are straight up, strict nuts and bolts. You know, he's been given the same old uh, spiel for decades. And um, I just, I, I think that if these were nothing more than physical craft coming here from another rock out there, we would have more evidence by now. And uh, also, I think that uh, we must acknowledge that even if they are from another rock out there, uh, they are shifting this relationship between space and time and, and matter and all that in, in order to create an interdimensional type of effect. And that's the level at which we have to look to understand these. And uh, unfortunately, right now in the UFO field, there are a lot of people who aren't keeping up with the latest research regarding the holographic universe or what I call the holosentient universe and the idea that, you know, you're not just some helpless little being sitting back watching this uh, interaction of particles bounce around in front of you, that you actually are a collaborator, that you participate in the experience of reality and that two or three people can be standing outside and see a UFO at the same time and each person sees something different because they are partially creating that experience. It's troubling, but you know, you get that old school mentality in ufology where, you know, it's hard to really sort of break people's expectations of they sort of have their opinion of what it is and that's all there is to it in their mind. So they made their mind up a long time ago what UFOs are and they're just trying to assemble all the pieces to prove it, whether the square peg fits in the round hole or not. Well, you know, you're right, and, and I think that is probably um, a great description of the problem altogether with science in general. Uh, you know, people take a vested interest in whatever they bring up that they believe is the, the proper explanation for anything, not just something paranormal. And, uh, you know, people ask me sometimes, why is it that we don't have more of these mainstream, credible scientists who are spending time working on these mysteries. And for one thing, I should say that it is unfortunate that usually the most um, apt people, uh, the people who are most qualified to work on these hard mysteries are not the ones who are doing it. And the reason is because that paranormal phenomena is by definition inconsistent and unpredictable. And studying inconsistent and unpredictable phenomena does not pay the bills. Yeah. And that's what these people are doing at these universities. They're, they're paying their bills. You know, this is their job. And you don't want to sit down before the board uh, every year and say, no, I really haven't figured this one out yet. <laughs> You know, so, so they decide to focus on um, the more crude and, and reliable and uh, lower level things that have practicality, uh, and and that's you know we've we've made great leaps and bounds because of that. But uh, that's why that we don't have the best people working on the paranormal mysteries. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense because even the people who were doing the paranormal mysteries as their full time gig, like you and me, it's still hard to get by. So oh, yeah. it's like. You know, I can't even imagine what it would be like if I had a family and stuff like that. I probably wouldn't even be able to do this, so. Yep. Well, you're right about that. And, and I, I don't have children. And my wife and I, we do not want children because we realize that, uh, you know, we'd rather use our resources to um, 
to work on things that we enjoy and when we can spend that money on ourselves. Exactly. Who'd want to bring a child into this crazy world anyway right now? That would be that's like child cruelty in and of itself. So <laughs> Yeah. I, I've never understood that really. So um you know, the web page or whatever is just something that you guys do for fun. Do you have a, a real job? Well, that is our job. Oh. We don't technically get money for the hours we put in, but it is our job. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. When you spoke at the UFO Congress and you, you know, talked about this hoax research and, and obviously the hoax research you're doing is sort of getting out there now and people are hearing more about it, um, what was the reaction like from the UFO community to someone doing this kind of research into hoaxes? You know, actually, I, I, all the feedback that I got was pretty positive. I, I did feel like that there were some people out there who felt like, you know, who, who is this kid who's coming along here and, and trying to, uh, you know, rattle... Uh, this foundation that we've, we've tried to build for so many years. But uh, most people, however, were refreshed because the fact of the matter is, you know, I've gone to a lot of conferences and I, I, I travel around and I get hired to speak on different things. And, and most of the content at conferences is boring. It, it's the same old stuff that's just being repeated over and over again. And whenever somebody comes up uh, before the audience and actually is – trying to present something new, something refreshing, I think that at very least it's, it's interesting and uh, if nothing more, it's entertaining. And so I think people enjoyed what I had to say, but uh, I also got a feeling that, you know, there were also people who, um, who may have been more uh, indebted to the traditional mindset that these are just nuts and bolts craft with creatures coming from another rock who are um, who, who, who were perturbed by the idea that I was talking about something they might think of as more philosophical or metaphysical. Yeah, exactly. Well, you always sort of run into that debate in the paranormal community, uh, the UFO community, really, of uh, nuts and bolts versus, quote-unquote, something else, I guess you could say. Micah was telling me you spent a lot – He had, this is his words, actually. You spent a hell of a lot of time down in Puerto Rico, so I guess that's <laughs> – uh, that's a, an inordinate amount of time, and he mentioned I should ask you about the gargoyle that lives in the El Yunque rainforest, which sounds really interesting. Uh, would this be something along the lines of a chupacabra, or are we talking a whole different sort of uh, sort of animal here? Well, you know, I, I'm definitely glad that you brought this up because, you know, I I have found that Puerto Rico is, from all my travels, the one place where you have the highest odds of going for a short period of time and witnessing the paranormal. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's a small island. It's only 100 uh, miles by about 60 miles. And, of course, it's in U.S. territory, so it makes it easy to travel there and to function there. And in Puerto Rico, what you find is that you not only have ghosts, but this is, you know, the oldest place in U.S. territory. So you have incredible colonial history preserved there. Uh, you not only have UFO reportings, but you have Arecibo there, which is the largest satellite dish on the face of the planet. So if, if Earth has a telephone to the cosmos, that's it. Uh, you not only have cryptids there, but it's the birthplace of the chupacabra. Mm -hmm. uh, you not only have, you know, treasure stories there, but you have 
you know, this is the place where Ponce de Leon went to look for the fountain of youth. And, and you keep going down this list, uh, all these chapels of miracles. And then, of course, it's one of the three points of the Bermuda Triangle. So uh, I, I traveled down there and was really surprised by just how predictable the paranormal can become down there. And uh, the El Yunque Rainforest is a place, it's, it's the only rainforest that is a, a U.S. national park. And uh, they have outstanding experiences with a, a wide variety of cryptids. Uh, the chupacabra is the one that most people uh, know. But there are other things that, uh, there's one called the Guerra Diablo, which I think that's the one Micah was referring to, which is sort of like this little gargoyle-looking thing that just sort of appears and scares the hell out of people and then disappears. And then you have these Bigfoot-looking type creatures and, and, and some things that are so weird that you can't even really begin to classify them. And what I find is that nowadays we see so so much in the news, in the media, about uh, a chupacabra just being some mangy coyote who's sneaking onto some rancher's property. But when you go down there and you talk to people, you find that uh, there are characteristics applied to the chupacabra that make it very obvious that this is either an interdimensional type creature or it's an alien. I mean, it, 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 for one thing, it kind of looks like an alien with these spines running down its back, and, and sometimes they talk about wings. And when people see it frequently, uh, there will be this sort of a, a blur or a hazy kind of swirl that will develop around it, and this thing will just shoot off into the sky and disappear. Uh, you know, I talked to a guy who told me a great story that uh, I believe was sincere. Uh, he said that, you know, he, he was a native there in Puerto Rico and that his grandmother and a lot of people in his community had always said that uh, uh, almost 100 years ago, there was an occasion when you know, they had a lot of their livestock being killed by some kind of creature that was frightening them. And so they set out a trap, uh, some type of a box to trap this thing, and they put a goat inside the box. And in the middle of the night, you know, all these men, they're standing around with their weapons and lights, and they're, they're just waiting to hear this trap shut. And sure enough, it snaps shut, and uh, the box is shaking around, and they had to build up their courage to even open it. And when they opened it, they found that here's the goat inside, and he's got the puncture wounds, and his blood's gone, but there's nothing in the box. <laughs> so whatever was trapped in there apparently just... Uh, just vanished, and this goes beyond anything that we consider a physical, uh, normal, biological organism. This would definitely be a phantom. Absolutely, yeah. It makes you wonder, uh, going back to what you were saying about the Bigfoot thing, um, how sometimes the tracks disappear. I, I sometimes wonder if, uh, let's say, for instance, we ever captured the Bigfoot. I think that maybe we'll find out that this is some kind of creature that can do these sort of things that we never even would have thought were possible, sort of like to draw a corollary, like, you know, the, the idea of like the lizards that regenerate their limbs and stuff. Let's say that we had never discovered that kind of thing before. And all we had was stories of people running into lizards or something and <laughs> stepping on their arms and then the lizard ran away and it grew back its arm and people wouldn't believe it. People would say that's not possible. And I sometimes wonder if, you know, we ever captured the Bigfoot or Chupacabra or something like that, that we just discovered that this is some unique, amazing ability of this animal to leave, uh, you know, our space-time and, and go somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. That That is how I view it, because it seems to me that, I mean, there is nothing 
scientifically speaking, that says creatures and that, that life has to exist within this realm that we consider physical. There's no basis for that in all of science, uh, you know, and yet people presume that because we're very egocentric and we, we try to, you know, anthropomorphize uh, creatures and we, we try to, to place everything around us in terms of ourselves, you know, the, the man in the moon and so on. And uh, it, it, to me, doesn't seem at all uh, improbable that there are creatures that either exist at uh, frequencies that are non-physical to us, or they teeter on a boundary and they're able to shift in and out uh, either at their own will or because of some environmental circumstances uh, such as this cosmic ebb and flow that uh, we're just now beginning to understand. And it's inspiring to me to see some of these crazy stories coming out about this Hadron Collider where, you know, you have these uh, rather mainstream scientists talking about uh, influences from the future and uh, interdimensional uh, openings and, and, and things that have always been science fiction, but now there is mathematics to support the fact that we live in a, a multi-dimensional world and uh, there's no reason we should keep thinking of the world solely in terms of ourselves and our own experiences. Exactly. It's really more a matter of getting the rest of the population caught up with us as far uh, yeah. as understanding what, how the parameters are changing so quickly. Yeah, it's very rare for um, the latest breaking scientific news to be uh, presented on the front page of a newspaper. Uh, you know, it, it's always something that is more egocentrically based. It's, it's, it's something that we can relate to on a daily basis because that's what, you know, most people are buying the newspapers for. And a lot of people don't realize that I, in, in October of 2006, you know, scientists uh, for the first time ever supposedly created the teleportation of a multi-atomic mass. I mean, nobody knows this. I don't even understand exactly how they did it. But uh, you know, the, the, if you keep up with it, you see that um, uh, among the, the people who are most qualified, who are actually doing the math, who have the resources, they may not go out there and, and talk about this on a frequent basis, but when you talk to them privately and personally, many of them are just as fascinated by all this and, and the paranormal as we are. Absolutely. That's definitely the case. It seems like uh, it's one of those old, it's like the old axiom, you know, you get them at the bar and have a couple of beers in them and they'll tell you some stuff that will really blow your mind. But if you're at the conference or whatever, then you chances are you're going to get the textbook version of the events on, unfolding. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, uh, and it, it really has to do with us acknowledging that that these scientists are, are just people who are working for their tenure they're they're working for their next paycheck and um, and they have to be careful about uh, anything that could be used to to ridicule them because these are the most difficult mysteries in the world and you know science has done a great job of allowing us to solve the simplest mysteries first over the past few hundred years. But now we've gotten to the point to where we're trying to apply this scientific thinking to the big, big, big mysteries. And the first step in the scientific process is observation. And yet what if these things, because they are so rare and inconsistent, uh, are things that cannot be observed in, in a year 
or 10 years? You know, what if it takes 100 years? What if it takes 1,000 years? Uh, we just don't have enough of a recorded database there to um, to put all those pieces together. And so there comes a point when you, you just have to form a, an opinion and a hypothesis and, and move forth from there. It's pure speculation, I'm sure, um, but I'm interested in your point of view because you're obviously very well schooled in the phenomena of Puerto Rico and also, you know, just the whole esoteric world in general. What do you think it is about Puerto Rico that makes it such a hotbed for, you know, esoteric activity? You know, that that is a great question, and, and I'm not certain of what the answer is. Um, I, I, one thing, if you if you just want to look at Puerto Rico historically, I mean, here it is. It appears to be this, you know, puny little island in the Caribbean, and yet the greatest powers in the world have been fighting over it for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, it, 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 first it was the Spanish, and then the English, and then the, the Dutch, and the French, and, and, you know, finally the United States invaded and took it. And for one thing, probably, you know, the reason that it's been so popular is because that it is a great base camp that sort of opens up this part of the, the Western world, so to speak. But as far as paranormal activity, um, you know, the, the, the planet itself is this big electrodynamic ball of energy. Yeah. And, you know, every second there are, you know, thousands of lightning bolts hitting the planet somewhere, and, and the planet pulsates with this resonance, the Schumann resonance, uh, which is usually, I think, about 8 hertz or something like that. And there is energy that is constantly, you know, coming into and going out of our planet. And right around Puerto Rico, uh, there is a, actually a spot, I think it's 25 miles off the coast of Puerto Rico. It's called the Puerto Rico Trench. And it's the deepest uh, trench in the Atlantic Ocean there. And it could be that there is something about that trench that makes it easier for this uh, very strange kind of earth energy to project forth and to um, to shift that interdimensional boundary back and forth in and out of phase and to uh, you know allow that particular spot to um, occupy this kind of nebulous realm where all these phantasmagoria will occur and you know from a physical perspective that might be the the explanation um, beyond that I think there's also something about the mindset of the people around there that have built up layers upon layer of um, kind of imprints. I mean, the reason we call that area the Caribbean is because there was a tribe of natives called the Carib, and uh, they were well known for being cannibals. Uh, in fact, the reason we have the word cannibal is because the Spanish called them uh, the Cannibalas, and they were despicable to the Spanish when the Spanish first arrived because these, you know, very savage uh, Caribs would sort of drift up under the dark quiet of night on a shore somewhere and come out and just absolutely wreak havoc and, and rampage a village, and they would take the women and, and girls hostage, and they would uh, kill and eat the men and boys. Oh, jeez. And, and so, yeah, so that whole area, you know, even going back for maybe even thousands of years, uh, you know, had that kind of 
of phenomena taking place. And so um, it, it's still a bit of a mystery as to, to why precisely that, that Puerto Rico has so much, but it probably has something to do with at least uh, those two variables. Yeah, it raises something that I've been thinking about lately, too, is just these window zones. Uh, I think as Nick Redfern called them when I was talking to him recently, these parts of the world that seem to have everything going on. Yeah. Uh, maybe something I'll look into more uh, in the future. All right, now what about this film you made here, Inside the Church of Satan? This is why I'm a big fan of your stuff, Joshua, because, you know, here you are, you're talking about going to the International UFO Congress and, and presenting on hoaxes, and, of course, we talked about the Lemur group and how you guys have been doing sort of ghost investigations for, oh, almost almost uh, 15 years now. And then here here I read about this other film that you made, Inside the Church of Satan. So you're, you're really, you've got your finger in all sorts of different pies, which I have a lot of respect for and, and sort of is the mission statement, if you will, of our program, you know, to cover all the different sort of genres and stuff like that. So I'm very fascinated by what you might have uncovered here about this, this Church of Satan, because, you know, most people, when they hear that, they get a little freaked out probably, and they, you know, they... They get kind of scared, and they think there's, like, animal sacrifices and stuff like that. But I have a feeling that you probably got a really good look at the inner workings of this church. So, uh, you know, what, what's the Church of Satan all about? Well, you know, well, thank you for that, because um, I was the first person in over 40 years who was an outsider who was allowed to go within the Church of Satan. And and really, the Church of Satan is a, a series of secret chambers that are located around the world. And I, I went to what is considered the, the, the central one, as referred by the head of the Church of Satan, Peter H. Gilmore. And, of course, the Church of Satan was founded by Anton LaVey. And if you read his book, The Satanic Bible, basically what you find is that he put forth a a philosophy of atheism that also acknowledges um, the idea that there are paranormal powers that humans possess. And I was intrigued by whether or not there were magical practices that were being done within the Church of Satan that would produce some kind of uh, incredible effect. I mean, uh, you grow, you grow up reading these books and watching these movies about you know wizards and sorcerers who can you know uh, create all these uh, uh, unimaginable sort of uh, outcomes by simply you know willing something to occur. Yeah. And uh, most of the time, you're surrounded by people who are trying to pretend that you know they're they're all they're good and they're positive and they're working with God and all this. But not so often do you come across somebody who says, you know, I'm working with the devil here. So, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to see, okay, well, can the devil do this stuff? You know, really, if, if you go and you hang out with the people who worship the devil, um, are they able to, to manifest demons? And the funny thing is that um, the, the people in the Church of Satan distinguish themselves from devil worshipers. Uh, and they say that devil worshippers are people who have bought into the Christian mythology that there are these two characters, God and the devil, and they don't um, believe that at all. They simply accept that you know people have you know, powers that we might call ESP, and that those powers can be used to create magical outcomes. And uh, as far as the experience of going inside the Church of Satan. Um, my arrangement with them was that uh, I would have, you know, editorial control. 
that they would have, of course, no influence over whatever my opinion ended up being. But I wanted to sit down with all of them, all the way up to the, the head of the Church of Satan, which I did, you know, the black pope. I sat down face-to-face -face with him and asked him all the toughest questions you could ever hope to ask. But uh, the, the one thing that I told them in exchange is that I would not release the location uh, of, of the places that, that I traveled to. And so uh, I actually had to fly to another country with just one other person, C. Eric Scott, who is a filmmaker I've worked with on a number of projects. And it was just the two of us. We flew to another country. We, we got off uh, the airplane. We were hassled a bit by customs. And then this guy met us at the airport who looked just like the devil. Oh, man. Yeah, this big, tall guy wearing a trench coat with the goatee and the piercing eyes and the pointy nose. And uh, and we got in his car, and he drove us off into this snowy, icy landscape as the sun was setting uh, much, much farther than we figured that we would be going into uh, the countryside. We passed through this big gate. And uh, when we finally got out in front of the house, uh, we were greeted by a big, huge, black uh, Great Dane. And when we went inside the house, I me mean, on the outside, the house looked very normal. I, I was not allowed to show the outside of the house. Yeah. But on the inside, uh, it, it looked just like what you would expect. I mean, uh, it was it was antiquated, and they were uh, they had a nice library with all kinds of books on the occult, and uh, they had a bar there, and it, <laughs> you know it was a pretty cozy environment. And then he starts taking us on a tour of the place, and it was, every single thing in the place was uh, was fascinating. I mean, all the artwork and the workshop they had where they would create sculptures. So I, I'd gone through and I thought that I'd seen the whole place and I said, so, you know, where do you do the rituals? And this guy turns around and I, I swear, just like something out of Scooby-Doo, he reaches over to the shelf and uh, maneuvers some kind of little, you know, book or whatever and this whole shelf just spun around and here is a secret chamber. Wow. And so we walked through this secret chamber and suddenly we are standing in the middle of one of the freakiest places I've I've ever been. Um in this hidden chamber which was shaped like a trapezoid and I think that uh, they claim the floor wasn't sloped but it, it kind of felt like it because it was just you kind of felt imbalanced uh, in there your equilibrium yeah. was a little off. Everything's black. Here, here's the altar with swords and skulls and coffins and uh, some of their most prized artifacts. Uh, you know, they had, for example, material from the floor where Rasputin was uh, murdered, and uh, they, oh, wow. they, yeah, they hold him Rasputin very highly, and they had all kinds of original, you know, Church of Satan artwork and stuff. And uh, so they, they, they showed us on camera what this chamber was like, and then. They uh, they opened one of the coffins in the room, and if you walk into the coffin, well, now this is another tunnel. <laughs> and oh, leads man. you even deeper <laughs> into a whole new section. And uh, it, to me, it was impressive just to see the extent to which these folks had gone to create these secret chambers where their rituals are done. 
And uh, I felt at that point, I mean, you must realize if they decided they were going to kill me or whatever, there's nothing I could have done about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. If I, if I called 911, uh, I wouldn't know where to tell them I was. You know, I didn't even know the address of the place. And so I ended up staying there for uh, a few days. And I, mean, I, I slept there and, and ate with them and just lived with these Satanists. And that was one of the many things I did. You know, I traveled around uh, to different places around the country and talked to different people who were high-ranking in the organization. But um, But finally... I was able to be the first person ever who was an outsider to witness and to document one of their magical rites, the rite of Ragnarok, and uh, all these hooded people with uh, with swords and knives and stuff. You know, they they took me and Eric into this chamber and they closed the door behind us and locked it. Oh, and man. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was pretty creepy. And then they they produced this ritual, but. Out of that whole experience, it was fascinating to explore everybody uh, from a, a psychological point of view and to understand why they they wanted to do this and, and sort of how their minds worked. But uh, I, I didn't see them produce any of those, you know, Harry Potter type effects. And so I don't think it's that easy to do that kind of thing. It may, it may be impossible to do that kind of thing. Um, but... They claim that when they put curses out there on people, that eventually it works, that it, it resonates, it helps. And um, to me, I found it kind of funny. A lot of people have this problem trying to understand how they can be essentially atheists, but at the same time believe that there is such a paranormal phenomenon that uh, is sort of channeled through their rituals and their abilities. Uh, and also at one point during the movie, I sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek decided I was going to try to conjure Satan up myself. And so I got a, a naked woman and, and laid her down on my dining room table, uh, which my wife loved, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very open-minded wife. And, uh, yeah, and, and I had the, the goat skull and the candles burning and the daggers and the satanic Bible and all that. And so I I tried to conjure up Satan for an interview right there. Uh, on camera, and uh, Satan did not appear, but uh, afterward, uh, there were some other strange things that happened around my house. Uh, for, for example, uh, there was this guy who's a friend of mine who's a minister who was coming to my house to bless my house after this had happened, and he was on his way over, and he got T-boned by another vehicle. Uh, just, it put him in the hospital, and uh, the woman who was driving the other car uh, claimed that her accelerator just pressed down on the car, and she couldn't control the car, and it was just like something out of the omen, you know. So, oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, weird stuff like that did did happen. Um, but uh, but altogether, it, it was fascinating just to spend some time in that underworld. Yeah, that sounds amazing. i got to pick this movie up. Where can people get a hold of the Inside the Church of Satan? Is that available online or something? Yes, it is. Uh, so far, I have maintained control of all the rights, and uh, if you go to InsideTheChurchOfSatan.com, uh, you can see a, a trailer. You can watch it online if you want, uh, and I, I will warn people there there are have been you know pirates and stuff who have bit torrents out there, but we've gotten a lot of viruses. Yeah, I would never even. Yeah, people shouldn't yeah. do that torrent stuff because it'll no, no, it'll but mess it's your only, computer up. Sure, yeah, it's only like in you know, a seven ninety five or something cheap like that to just watch the thing honestly online. 
Uh, and then we also will sell DVDs. And if, if you watch the movie online and you like it and you buy the DVD, then we'll credit you for the amount you spent to watch it online. Oh, that's a great deal. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh, inside the church of Satan.com has got all that material. And that, that was a very um, cool experience, but at the same time, I, I felt kind of depressed after being around people for so long who delve into the ghoulish, you know. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that because uh, now you said you like stayed at the house for a few days and stuff like that. Are these guys like who are into the Church of Satan and everything? Are they are they like that twenty four seven, or is there actually like some downtime where they're like, "All right, dude, uh, we're going to do the ritual later, but I got to watch Judge Judy right now." So, you know, <laughs> they have like do they have their normal moments where you're like, oh, "Okay, you know, you." You're into the Church of Satan, and you also enjoy, you know, Survivor or something. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, they definitely um, live the philosophy 24 hours a day, and yet they also have no problem whatsoever about lying to everybody in society and pretending they are not Satanist if that's what it takes to maintain a job or to maintain a position of influence. And uh, you know, they, they don't have any kind of martyr mentality. Uh, none of them are willing to, to be burned at the stake because they're standing up for Satanism. And in fact, I even asked the Church of Satan head, uh, the priest there who was the direct successor of Anton LaVey, I said, you know, do you feel like you're a little bit of a wimp? You know, you, you won't stand up for what you believe in? And he said, no. He said, not at all. And, and he was proud of the fact that um, they have politicians, they have celebrities, they have, you know, teachers, people who on the outside live what appears to be very ordinary lives, but uh, privately they're very uh, highly actively engaged in this um, this particular religion or philosophy. And so they believe it, and they'll, you know, 24 hours a day they're in that mindset, but they, uh, they're they more than happy to put on a good acting job and deceive you if need be. Now, uh, I know you recently put out your list of top ten scariest monsters, and Micah implored to me that I ask you about the Popo Bawa, <laughs> right. the, the demon serial rapist of Zanzibar. And unfortunately, that was my nickname in college, too. It sort of has a weird connection with me. But really, though, <laughs> in all seriousness, what, what is this uh, Popo Bawa? It sounds uh, terrifying. Yeah, Popo Bawa is the most severe, uh, the most demeaning of all of these sort of demonic cryptozoological presences that I've come across. And um, and indeed, uh, this has been reported around Tanzania for years. Um, basically, Popobawa is reported to be this sort of seven to eight foot tall, black, sort of leathery humanoid with wings and these long, powerful fingers with these curved talons protruding from the ends. And Papa Bawa will appear at night in the bedrooms, mainly of men. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And by the time men realize what's going on, it's, it's too late. Papa Bawa has them pressed face down onto the mattress. And uh, he, you know, viciously rapes them. And then the thing that makes it even weirder is that Papa Bawa, when he is done, will actually lean down 
and breathe his hot, rank breath into their ears, and then he will speak to them. Oh. It's something you don't hear very often. Jesus, this is scary. <laughs> yeah, you can see why this is pretty pretty darn frightening. It sounds like a prison film. Yeah. And uh, Papa Bawa says in their ear, If you don't tell everybody what I have done to you, I am going to come back in a week, and it's going to be ten times worse. And then he leaves. Jesus. And so it's it's bad enough that you are being you know terrorized and raped in your bedroom at night. <laughs> it's even worse that you have to tell everybody <laughs> about it. Yeah, yeah, that's something you want to keep to yourself. Well, I would imagine, yeah, and <laughs> and, and and yet this is uh, you see this is completely unique in the world of uh, of demonology and uh, cryptozoology. So far as I know, I've, I've just never heard of anything quite like that, and, and the fact that this creature is so vicious, he wants to add insult to injury. Now, one funny thing about this is that, um, you know, in, in Africa, there has been uh, just mass savage raping of women going on for, for many, many years, and so a lot of people have, have wondered if some of these women who are familiar with, you know, voodoo and, and other African tribal magic have actually gotten together and uh, ritualistically created Papa Bawa as an agent of vengeance to uh, to go out there and and uh, vindicate them, so to speak, and you know terrorize some of these some of these men. And uh, it, but it's it's so difficult to get the facts on that because that um, it's just it's just so unbelievable, and yet. Uh, Sure enough, you can, you know, if you don't believe me, you can go research this for yourself, Papa Bawa, and you'll see that there's a whole tradition of people who say they've experienced this. Now, is this something that, like, goes back centuries, or is this something that sort of has emerged, you know, more recently, and, and do these Papa Bawa attacks actually still happen, you know, from time to time in contemporary times? Well, they're still happening, and in fact, I first learned about this uh, a few years ago, I, by reading an article about it in the Fortean Times. And I think that the what we consider the real Papa Bawa phenomenon has uh, kind of peaked just since the early 1990s. But as is often the case, you have people out there who uh, claim that there are, are similar things that have been reported for hundreds of years in that area but now whether or not it's, it's the same thing uh we you know we just can't be certain of that but uh, to me uh, you know and, and and by the way papa bawa you know it's a swahili name and uh it literally translates into into bat wing so it, it's a, a reference to the fact that this thing you know it, it flies in like some big ghoulish you know bat-like demon to do this, but uh, you know, there there are ideas about this being a shapeshifter that's been around for a long time. Yikes! That's just bizarre. It's because beyond creepy, almost, you know. Yeah. Um, one thing I know that you're uh, really excited about that you guys have going on—that's the Lemur Laboratory. So, tell me a little bit about uh, what what that's all about and what you guys are doing with the Lemur Laboratory. Yeah. Well, you know, for so many years, uh, we have kept just an action-packed schedule of going out there and gathering field data at a, a variety of locations uh, around you know the world and 
once in a while, you have to sort of stop and take this mountain of data you've collected and look into your archives to determine how this information should be used to actually understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and so it, I, I, for a long time, I've wanted us to have a lab to ourselves that was proficient enough and had all the, the necessary equipment so that we could try to adapt some of what we have learned into uh, controlled lab experiments. And if, you know, when we made the cover of the Science Journal in 2004, back then, I was utilizing the lab of a friend named Charles Yost, uh, who's dead now. Uh, he was a NASA Hall of Fame engineer, and uh, we were fortunate to have access to his wonderful lab and facilities. But uh, after he died, the whole thing kind of fell into, into disarray. And so that's when it became clear that if we were to continue, we needed to have our own lab. And It's been a long process of, of gradually putting all the components in place to get a lab environment together that is good enough for us to be able to start, you know, adapting some of what we've learned into lab experiments. And uh, what we are, are researching right now in the lab is um, this very weird thing we call the ray, uh, which is this coherent thread-like stream of energy that we've been able to, to produce that uh, it doesn't seem to be electrical, doesn't seem to be magnetic. Uh, I mean, it, it's not affected by electricity or magnetism. It's not affected by uh, radiation. It's not affected by heat turbulence. Uh, we can't figure out for the time being what this thing is that defies any kind of interaction with all those energies. And we, however, are hopeful that this stream of energy might actually be a tiny little tunnel that we're creating because we're using a, the only way we can see it is using a special system at our lab called Schlieren Optical Visualization, which uh, uses a series of uh, cameras and astronomical quality concave mirrors in order to allow us to see very, very subtle changes in the density of air between two points. And uh, we are thinking if this is indeed a, a tunnel of some kind that we're, we're, we're looking at here, if we're able to enlarge it and magnify it, then we might be able to actually, you know, peek down the middle of, peek down the middle of it and, and see uh, into another, uh, another dimension. And, and that's sort of our ultimate goal there at the lab is to see if we can, you know, artificially create some kind of an interdimensional warp that will give us access to these other realms. That's wild. That's amazing. That's some groundbreaking stuff right there. Well, you're right. It is. It really is. And I mean, this was, you know, we have a whole list of things that we want to do, but that was top of the list. And to me, I mean, the night that we were able to create the ray, you know, I bought a bottle of champagne. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. we uncorked that thing, and that was, that was a historic night for me. So um, for people who want to sort of see pictures of this and understand more of what I'm talking about, uh, if you go to lemurlabresearch.com, 
Uh, you'll find photographs there and, and a little more of a description about what we're working on, but we don't know if this is what's considered part of the dark flow or, or dark matter. Um, there are, just, you know, we, we just sit around and we talk about this for hours. And in fact, we had a lemur meeting last night and, and the night ended us, you know, sitting around and talking about all kinds of new approaches we're going to take to try to figure out what this is and, and how to expand it. But, uh, we may actually be looking at something that we can we can actually manipulate that we can actually control that will finally give us a, well maybe something like a wormhole uh, that we can use to directly access these other dimensions that sounds amazing be careful what might come out of the other end of that Yikes. yeah that's right we're you know we're a little concerned about that especially with all these stories about the hadron collider and you know that there there it's sort of like we've reached this critical point uh, collectively amongst researchers where we're all in our own way kind of working toward the same goals and uh i don't know what's going to happen i don't know i mean it, it, to me that ray right now it represents the absolute embodiment of the unknown and the paranormal you got to take that kind of risk you know in general that's, that's sort of my attitude as a journalist i cheer for the story so if it unleashes a whole horde of demons on the human race you know at the end of the day, maybe it was probably worth it just to say you did it. <laughs> Hopefully, it won't be a bunch of Papa Bawas. Oh, jeez, no, we don't want <laughs> we don't want that. Um, you know, at the risk of opening up a whole can of worms, but I'm excited to find out, you know, what these worms are all about. I guess you could say, what's next for you? What do you have cooking? You know, at the Lemur Lab, other than this Ray thing, and you know, I'm sure you, you're working on some books and some research projects, and you know, God only knows, movies. Who knows? You got the radio show. I mean, what 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 do you have going on that people can check out and be looking forward to uh, checking out in the future from you? Yeah, oh yeah, that is a big question. You know, <laughs> 2010 is already getting booked up. Um, I do plan on, uh, if everything goes according to plan, uh, making. A, uh, a feature film in 2010 about the creepiest haunted house that uh, I ever investigated, and it's a house where a massacre occurred. And so uh, we'll see if all that falls into place because uh, this is the kind of thing we're talking with, you know, real name actors and, and all that. So that's one thing I've got on my agenda. I'm getting oh, nice. the screenplay finished up for that. Uh, and indeed, the, the lemur lab in and of itself is a full-time job. I mean, we're, we are doing so many experiments in 2010. We are planning to, to not only try to open these portals and so on, but to do more experiments with humans to try to understand what it is about the human experience that allows people to encounter the unknown. Uh, simple things, for example, like taking an array of LEDs that span from the infrared to the ultraviolet and taking 100 people, 50 of whom have seen ghosts and 50 have not, and testing each one of them, testing their eyes out to see if there is a particular frequency that people are looking into when they most often see an apparition. Um, building models, you know, miniature scale models of haunted houses and trying to reproduce some of the effects in the haunted houses by adding various voltages to the different floors and seeing if we can create capacitance effects that will explain why that some places in the house are more prone to producing these things than others. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then as, as far as the, you know, just commercial types of things, 
Uh, I've been hired to do a big cruise uh, down into the Caribbean, a paranormal cruise, and I've got information there at joshuapwarren.com. And uh, they've they've hired a bunch of different paranormal experts for the seven-day cruise down into the Bermuda Triangle. And Oh, yikes. Yeah, and, I, and of course, that's a place I'm very familiar with, but uh, talk about fun. You know, I, I love cruising. I mean, it, it, so uh, I, I've just got, um, you know, so many things from investigations to experiments to the movies and the radio stuff to me at this point is just a, a common staple of, of a weekly schedule. So, you know, you can always rely on that. But uh, I, I think really what it boils down to is that We've reached the point now where we're understanding enough and we have enough equipment and we have enough resources to actually start plucking at that sort of string that seems to separate us from this other realm. And and we're we're trying to, to resonate that boundary. We're trying to disturb it and disrupt it. And we're fortunate because, you know, we've been to so many paranormally active places that now we can take the frequencies and the voltages and all the things that we found at those places and sort of reproduce them in order to get the kind of effects that we're looking for in the lab. And um, I, I, there's no way of knowing how close to success we may be here, but 2010, you know, it could be the year when we finally are able to say, okay, listen up, everybody. If you want to look into the other dimension, here's how you do it. Sounds good. And, of course, people can find out more from you at joshuapwarren.com. Yep, joshuapwarren.com has got links to everything. And i got to ask you, before I let you go here, before I do the wrap-up, what is this Kelly Pickler on a ghost hunt I see on your website here? You <laughs> ghost hunting with the uh, American Idol Zone, Kelly Pickler? Yeah, yeah. In fact, that was a Halloween event that, we did at the radio station, and uh, as it turns out, Kelly Pickler and some of her publicists are apparently big ghost hunting fans, and they, they knew who I was, and they'd been reading my books and were kind of surprised to find that I was hosting a radio program at this particular station and said, hey, let's, let's put together a ghost hunt for Halloween. So as sort of a promotional thing for her and everybody else, I was able to gain access to the Smith McDowell House, which is the oldest mansion here in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, they have just a, a very long history of deaths and tragedies, and so uh, we took her and some of the big corporate uh, bigwigs there from her record label on this ghost hunt for the evening, and uh, she just had a wonderful time. That sounds cool, yeah. I'd love to, uh, I'm going to have to watch that video at, at length now when I get the chance, but yeah, definitely folks should check that one out on joshuapwarren.com as well. Tons of stuff on there, it's jam-packed. Well, Joshua, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been a long time coming. Uh, we should have had you on much earlier than this, but uh, as much like you, my schedule's jam-packed, so I'm finally glad I got a chance to sit down and talk with you. We really only scratched the surface of the research that you've done. I mean, we didn't even touch the Brown Mountain Lights and, and all your amazing research into that. But, of course, we're going to have you back on the show in the future to talk about that stuff and the emerging stuff that you're working on right now. Um, and I'm just stunned by how fast this conversation went by. I mean, we did almost two hours here, and it feels like I just picked up the phone to call you. So it was really quite an enjoyable conversation. It was great talking to you, great finally meeting you in the virtual sense, if you will, and I hope this is just the beginning of future adventures for the two of us and our mutual buddy there, Micah A. Hanks. 
Well, you know, Tim, I commend you for all the fantastic work that you are doing. And yes, uh, we we are all in a circle of very productive people who have the right mindset to move forth. And so it's uh, it's been you know a lot of fun. And yes, we've only scratched the surface. So I'll be more than happy to come back and give you updates on what we're doing. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation to, to have me on here tonight. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to Joshua P. Warren for coming on the show. You can check out his website, www.joshuapwarren.com. All one word, joshuapwarren.com. Check it out. Also want to extend an additional thanks to Joshua for having me on his show. Speaking of strange, had a great time appearing on the program. You can find linkage to that at joshuapwarren.com as well. And... To top it all off, we want to thank Micah A. Hanks for his insights into the career of Joshua P. Warren. Gave us tons of avenues to explore for this conversation. Thanks again, Micah, for your input on this episode. Moving on, let's dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. We have so many emails to get to that were accumulated over the hiatus. I picked out three here this week to tackle for the return of the feedback, and as luck would have it, it's three international listeners, two from Australia, one from Canada. Let's just get cooking on these because there's quite a lot to talk about. The first email comes from James in Perth, Australia, and here's what he has to say. Just a quick email to thank you for the quality of programs archived. Good luck with the next season. Love the Bruce Rocks trilogy. I've had 15 plus years of searching, whether metaphysical, theosophical, psychological, religious, cults, media, etc. Sometimes delusional, occasionally tasting the sugar, yet mostly burned out, until I recently have been reinvigorated with curiosity, thanks to shows like yours. Something is happening. I am cynical due to overexposure of the 90s New Age nonsense, even though I have had many experiences, including visits from friendly beings, who seem to work on me for 45 minutes, and a separate ayahuasca god experience. Anyway, I could carry on, but I'm sure you've heard it before. Regards, James in Perth, Australia. Thanks for writing in, James. Always great to hear from the international listeners, and really quite humbling, not only to hear from someone so far away in Australia, but to know that we played a part in reinvigorating their interest in the esoteric. That is really cool. Thank you for sharing that with us, James. Really appreciate it. I agree that something is happening. What it is, I have no idea, but there does seem to be a percolating going on here over the last few years. Thankfully, the 90s New Age nonsense is behind us. I'm not quite sure how we're going to look back on this decade that ends when this month ends, but I think we'll look back on it as perhaps a time of reawakening, reinvestigation, and evolution in the world of esoterica. That's what I feel like we'll say about the aughts when we look back on them. Glad to hear you like the Bruce Rucks trilogy. Stick around. Bruce will definitely be back in Season 5. I keep in good contact with him, and I am looking forward to talking to him again and bringing him back on BOA Audio to discuss his first book and a whole bunch of other sci-fi-related stuff that's gone down since we had our first interview. So once again, thanks for writing in. James in Perth, Australia. Next up comes an email from Nick in Canada with some guest suggestions. Here's what he has to say. Wanted to commend you on a truly awesome lineup of guests over the past few seasons. I discovered your radio show purely by chance, but have been seriously into the UFO phenomenon for over 20 years now. 
some guests I'd love for you to think about getting on the next season, all of whom can be found on Google. David Sarita. I swear to God this man could be the new Einstein. His groundbreaking research on the infamous Tether incident and NASA UFOs is reason alone to get him on. But not only that, he's an expert on anti-gravity and all things esoteric. Richard C. Hoagland. Say no more. Get him talking about the moon or Mars and you've got a show right there. Sergeant Clifford Stone. Had met an EBE and was on the Stephen Greer panel for the Disclosure Project event in 2001. Whitley Strieber, famous abductee and author. Stephen Greer, you know who this guy is. Cheers and best of luck for the future, Nick in Canada. Well, Nick, first of all, thanks for writing in. Really appreciate that you shot us an email with some guest suggestions. Very cool that you just discovered BOA Audio. Hopefully you're digging into our archive. Lots of great UFO guests in there. I am well aware of all the folks that you listed and they are definitely on the radar for BOA Audio. I can't make any promises, but as you know, with this program, I love the A-list guests, and there are definitely some A-list guests in that mix, as well as some folks with some truly compelling stories. I would definitely like to interview all of them eventually on BOA Audio, whether it's in Season 5 or not. I can't be sure just yet, but they are definitely folks who are on the list to get on BOA Audio eventually in the future. So stay tuned to the program. You never know when one of the superstars and the supernovas of esoteric research are going to pop up on BOA Audio. Thanks again for writing in, Nick. And we move to the final email of the week, and that comes from Roseanne, also in Australia. Two emails from Australia. We actually got quite a few emails during the hiatus from folks in Australia. It's quite amazing, the grassroots following we have down there in Australia. I would love to go to Australia someday, folks. It is something that I have wanted to do for a very long time. BOA might stand for Banal of Australia someday. That would be pretty neat. But let's get into Roseanne's email. Here's what she has to say. Just listen to the Columbine Conspiracy episode of BOA Audio. Fantastic show, as usual. But I did hear you say in the emails you read on another show that William Zabel's website is down, etc. I have tried to read some of his book on that page, but some stupid error comes up. Have you been able to establish what has happened to him and his webpage? I also had to laugh the other night, as I usually listen to you whilst walking or at night, so I'm not sure what episode it was, but you read an email where the guy asks if you are lighting a cigarette. Oh my god, that's exactly what I was thinking every time I hear that very noise. Is he having a smoke? Really do love the shows. Hurry back. Roseanne in Australia. Thanks for writing in, Roseanne. You touched on two of the big topics from BOA Audio listener feedback last year. It's time for my monthly update on William Zabel. Still no word from the Z-Man, folks. I don't know what's going on. At some point, I just kind of gave up on trying to get in touch with William Zabel. How many times can you call someone and not get an answer? How many times can you email and not hear back from them until you just give up? That's kind of what happened. I'll make a renewed effort after the new year to try and get in touch with William Zabel, but at this point, we're just going to have to wait it out and hope he resurfaces at some point in the future. As always, if there's ever any break in this story, I will let you all know as soon as possible, because the number of emails we got, not just on the William Zabel episode, but the William Zabel disappearance, is frightening, to be honest with you, so... A lot of folks have been waiting to hear what's going on with William Zabel, and I will do my best to eventually track him down. 
regarding the smoking. I told the folks at the end of Season 4 that I was going to work on quitting smoking. Unfortunately, the Beast still has his mitts firmly wrapped around me as far as smoking goes. I'm doing my best still to cut down on my cigarette smoking, but it is a battle, as anyone who's been an addict to the smokes can tell you. I've been thinking of hypnotism lately, actually, but it's expensive, and I'm kind of weary of doing that, because what if I pay the 200 dollars for the hypnosis, and then next thing you know, I'm smoking two or three days later. I can't get my money back for that. So I'm investigating hypnosis. If I could get free hypnosis, I would be down for that in a heartbeat. But I also don't want to put my mind in the hands of some amateur uh, crazy person either. So <laughs> we got to be careful who you let hypnotize you. But I am investigating hypnosis. I might try it. I would like to turn it into a show, possibly. Maybe we do an interview with the hypnosis guy. I found someone around here. And we give the hypnosis thing a try and try and defeat the, uh, the, the crippling addiction to cigarettes that I have. I'll be the first to admit it. Smoking is not cool, folks. Don't smoke. I wish I'd never started it. I'm doing my best here to ultimately defeat the cigarettes. But until then, you're going to be hearing the infamous click, click, click on the programs. You probably heard a few of them already tonight on the show as I was hacking butts throughout all the interviews we've taped so far in Season 5. But that's part of the raw appeal of BOA Audio. You're listening to the real conversation with the real weird stuff going on in the background. Cigarettes, smoking, roosters in Jim Mars backyard. It's all fair game here on BOA Audio. Thanks again, Roseanne, for writing in, and once again, thanks to Nick in Canada and James in Perth, Australia. BOA Audio listeners spanning the globe, you guys are awesome. Really appreciate you writing in and your support during our downtime. The fun has just begun here on BOA Audio listener feedback. If you want to be a part of it, if you want to join in on the conversations that go on here at the end of the show, there's three really easy ways to get in touch with me. Let me go through the list for you. First, you can just go to banallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Click the contact button. That'll provide you with the information on how to write to me on my primary email address. Or you can write to my backup email, boaaudio at hotmail.com. I check that all the time. So don't worry if you're just going to write to that one. And the third way is more interactive. And quite a bit of fun. It is the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Any of those methods puts your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. And while I'm on the subject of the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, you definitely want to swing over there for the 2009 edition of Ask Stanton Friedman. We did it last year for the holidays special. It was a huge success. Stan loved it. I loved it. We had so much fun reading those questions from the BOA Audio listeners who are a part of the official BOA forum, the US of E.com. So we're going to do it again this year, and the thread is already open at the US of E.com, so get on over there and post your question. Even if you're not a forum fan, you can just join up one time only, post the question, and then bail, and you never have to come back. I won't take it personally. It's no big deal. Hopefully, you do join up if you haven't joined already, and you get involved in some of these conversations at the official forum. 
and really make yourself at home there with some of the great folks who are members of the US of E because we'd love to have you. We love expanding the circle and the community that is the official BOA forum. Nonetheless, ask Stanton Friedman, the 2009 edition, up and running right now at the USOE.com. Deadline to submit your question is December 11th, 2009. So you got about nine days left here to get your question formulated and posted at the USOE, and then sit back and wait for the holiday special, and you'll get to hear Stan Friedman answer your question. Up next, as always, it is the thanks portion of the show. Let me roll through the list of the outstanding Vanilla America staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, and Marla Pena, as well as our webmaster, Jeremy Boston, and our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolyn. I'm going to get back into the habit of detailing and plugging their columns starting next week. I'm kind of running on fumes here for you this week, but I say it all the time, and it's the truth. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at banalofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. So come on over to Banal of America if you haven't visited the website before. The URL address is www.binallofamerica.com. Check it out. As I bemoaned at the beginning of the program, it is the holiday season. We've got the holiday special coming up. I'm excited about that. The holiday season, though, always gives me a little indigestion. Since it is the holiday season, I turn to you now, the fantastic BOA Audio listeners, the hardcore listeners, the ones who stick around all the way through the program, even listening to me ramble here at the end of the show. And I ask you to make a donation to the program, make a donation to Banal of America, help us keep the ship up and running. How do you do that? Pretty simple. You go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's so simple, a caveman could do it. And as always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the program and the website in business, commercial-free, and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Do your part. Help out BOA. Make it a happy holiday for us. We would hugely appreciate it. Next week on the program, we return to the realm of UFOs with one of the most tireless and hardworking researchers in all of ufology. The director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Peter Davenport, returns to BOA Audio for a discussion on all things related to the National UFO Reporting Center and the world of ufology. We're going to get an update from Peter on what's been going on at the NUFORC. We're going to discuss some compelling cases that he's come across in the last few years. We're going to really delve into a sort of behind-the-scenes look at the NUFORC. What are the good developments that have come up since Peter took over the organization? What are the bad developments that have happened since he became the director of the NUFORC in 1994? We're going to get his thoughts on the woeful coverage of UFOs by the media and a really amazing and compelling story from him about his meeting with government officials in 1997. This stuff had me on the edge of my seat, and it will blow your mind when you hear it. I'd never heard this story before until this conversation with Peter Davenport, and it was some stunning, stunning stuff. 
plus, of course, tons and tons more. It is really a very entertaining and fascinating edition of BOA Audio with someone who puts in probably more man hours to the field of ufology than just about anybody else in all of UFO studies. Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, he returns to BOA Audio next week. And on that note, we close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Joshua P. Warren, Micah A. Hanks for his insights, and all of the great BOA Audio listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you for finding us upon our return and making us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.